Uh, Your passage this morning comes from Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. I'll just wait a little bit here for you guys to have that up. This is the word of the Lord. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, and as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing at heaven, as they went, they, uh, as, as, they, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, "Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." This is the word of the Lord. Um, I'm very thankful to see people come out in the pews today. Um, It's been a long time since I've seen some of your faces. Uh, And though I think for many of us, we've had some conversations, uh, seeing your faces uh, actually been something that's made me really happy this morning. So if I'm smiling this morning, know it's because of you guys and also for you guys out there as well. So... Let's start with our sermon this morning. So I want to start by saying that every business and organization today and club has a mission. And that mission is often captured in a mission statement. Now, if you don't know what a mission statement is, a mission statement often talks about or speaks about what does the group look to do. And mission statements are then often followed by a vision statement. And what the vision statement is trying to do is it tries to express to you you know, after doing all of your mission, what are you hoping to accomplish by the mission that you've set forward? So let me give you an example. Amazon's mission is that we strive to offer our customers the lowest possible price, the best available selection, the utmost convenience. Right? This sounds like the mission of Amazon, and if you go on their website, that's exactly what you're going to get. Now, what you may not know is that Amazon also has a vision that's tied to this mission. And their vision is to be the Earth's most customer-centric company, to build a place where people can come and find and discover anything they may want to buy online. Again, mission meets vision. Now, mission and vision statements in our world today can be very effective in the corporate world, in clubs, um, because they help us to set a goal for what we want to accomplish, what we want to do, and who we are. And if they're executed properly with the proper motivation and the proper means, all these groups can accomplish what they've set their mission and vision to do and accomplish. Now, why do people write mission statements and vision statements? And I think it's more than just that they're trying to tell you what their business interests are. I think ultimately, the goal of creating a mission or vision statement is to capture the imagination of consumers and employees to work towards something, to feel like they're a part of something, and ultimately to be loyal to their mission and brand. Now, we as a church also have a mission, and that's the topic of today's sermon. But I want to ask you, when we talk about this mission of the church, 
How excited are you to talk about the mission? Does it capture your imagination when we talk about God's plan of redemption? Do you feel like you're a part of something bigger? And ultimately, because we are faithful to the Lord, are we then dedicated to the mission of God or the Missio Dei? The church's mission is not so easy as some of the missions that are out there today because it requires more of us than just to spend time and money on this mission. It's asking us to dedicate ourselves to a task. It's calling us to speak boldly into a hostile world and calling us to rely on God's means to accomplish his goals. Now, oftentimes I feel like our feelings towards God's mission for us is not one of exuberance, but it's one of dread, and that we feel ill-equipped to tackle such a lofty objective. But the goal of today's sermon and its main idea or main message is that I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that God has, has gifted us the power to fulfill this mission, and he's given this mission that he's given to the church. So let's go. Again, I want to encourage you that God has gifted to us the power needed to fulfill the mission he's given to the church. So let's go. Now I want to begin by what exactly is the mission of the church? What is the mission that God has in store for us? And it, it talks a little bit about this idea today that we are his witnesses. But I think it's better clarified if we look, at, look to Luke chapter 24, verses 66 to 68. So I'm going to read that for you here. So it's thus as it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now, I, I want to give the mission here, which I just did, but I also want to give us the larger framework to understand what we're actually talking about in reading today. That the church exists to bring glory to God. And this generally happens in two ways, I think. Firstly, it generally happens through discipleship. When we come together as a church, we worship together, we speak together, we teach, we train, so that we can become more and more like Christ, that we can give him more and more praise, that we can depend on him more and more. The second way, and it's the second way this verse talks about, is that we need to be witnesses to the ends of the earth by proclaiming God's good news. Now, these two ideas or two concepts are connected. Right, the idea of evangelism or missions leads into a deeper discipleship with God, or is the beginning of discipleship of the Lord. And I don't want any of us to think that the sole mission of the church is discipleship, or the sole mission of the church is just missions. Rather, the, the sole goal of the church is to bring glory to God, of which we do it both by discipleship and evangelism. This is the core purpose of the church. But that being said... This passage here does mark the mission that God has for the church. It is a commission to the church that they are to go out into the world and be God's witnesses. And their job is to proclaim his salvation to the ends of the earth. Again, as Luke's gospel says, we are his witnesses in the world. And the content of our witness is to share about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came to save all the nations by suffering and dying for their sins, and now he is raised, confirming his identity and showing us that he has overcome sin and death. And now he calls all the peoples of the earth to himself to repent and believe upon his saving work, 
This is our mission. This is what we are witnessing about. And if evangelism and the mission and this message is not part of the DNA of our church, then we are failing as a church. And the mission of the church here is unlike any other mission on this earth, unlike any other businesses and their missions and interest groups and their missions, where people define their missions based on human subjective thinking, our mission as a church is grounded historically and has has been given authoritatively. First, historically, our mission as a church was was, was given to us by its creator, and that's Jesus Christ, who created this institution, and he has set in stone the purpose of why we exist as a church. Now, that means that the church is not about all these other things, other things. There's no other mission except this. We're not about social transformation. We're not about being God's hands and feet. Now, don't get me wrong. These are good things, and they often can help us in giving the message or delivering this message. But these are secondary to our primary purpose, and that is to proclaim God's message to the ends of the earth. Secondly, our mission is given to us authoritatively, and this is because our mission doesn't just come from human beings who are fallible. It comes from Jesus Christ, who, is, who now reigns at the right hand of God. And he knows what our mission should be, and he spells it out for us, and nobody can challenge that mission now or change it. Because his word comes, or this word comes, from a kingly authority, and he has enlightened all of us about what his church is about. Now, in the world around us, and maybe in, in the businesses that you work for or the interest groups that you're a part of, we all know that vision and mission statements can change, right? Your business goes under new management, there's a new mission, new, new mission, new vision. There are new trends in the world that people are interested in, so businesses or interest groups want to be part of that, so they, they redefine themselves to meet these trends to stay relevant in the world. This is not so for the church and its mission, because our goal or mission as a church is a mission that's given to us until Christ returns. And it's spelled out for us, and it is clear and unchanging. And if the mission of the church ever does change, it means that the mission is complete and over. Now, all these things I'm saying, I just want to set the stage so that we understand why we're here this morning and why, and why we exist as a church, or what our mission is as a church. And it's clear as we look at these passages in the book of Acts. So let's go there and take a look there. Beginning in verse 6 this morning, the apostles ask Jesus, you know, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus is raised from the dead. There is this this suddenness and, and power and realization of all these things that have occurred and seeing that God's servant, God's anointed one, the Messiah has come and he has been raised. And so now the, now the apostles ask a, a very important question, maybe one that we often don't think about, but one to be on the tip of the minds of every Jewish person. And that's the question of, Lord, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? What the Israelites are really asking at this time is, is our ministry over? Is our mission done? The disciples at this point in time had gone through many different things already to the book of Luke. They experienced the, the, the anointed one. Is now the time when Christ is going to come, when things will end, and we're going to see restoration 
We're going to see justice proclaimed. This is a pertinent question for the apostles to ask. Now, Jesus' answer in verse 7 is emphatically no, but rather there is a new mission that's beginning. He says in verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, Jesus here doesn't reject their question because their question is a good one. It's a fair one. Neither is he scolding them for asking this question as some preachers have said. It's my conviction from the Bible that Israel one day will actually will go through a restoration, but maybe quite different than how many people view it. The new covenant has been brought about, the fulfillment of the old covenant, and all of its promises will find their final fulfillment in Christ. And this is something that we learn throughout the New Testament. Therefore, and so yes, there will be a restoration of the faithful remnant of Israel. But they will be joined by the Gentiles who have been grafted in by faith. And that all of us will live eternally in the new Jerusalem, not because of our bloodline, not because of our earthly heritage, but because of, for all of us, both, both Jew and Gentile alike, because of our faith in Christ. Now what Jesus says here is that this time, that time that I just described, this restoration that's to come is not now. Jesus tells them that this is something that they should not be concerned about at this time. Instead, Jesus tells them what they should be doing and what they will be receiving for this new mission. As he says in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, if you didn't know, the, this, this section in Acts is all happening in Jerusalem. They're here waiting because that's what they were told to do. Jesus had told them that to wait here and wait for power to come, wait for the promise to come before you go. And that's what they did. They waited. And then as they waited, this promised Holy Spirit came and baptized them. As it says in verse 4 and 5, it says, While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John the Baptist baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so we, saw the Holy, we see the Holy Spirit come upon them, and they're told that it's given them great power, and it's going, to make, it's, going to, it's going to embolden or empower their witness to the world. Now, friends, this is, a, uh, this is something that we will see throughout the book of Acts. We will see in the book of Acts the power and the wonder and the majesty of the Holy Spirit as it descends on the church and how they go out with this power. Now, this is actually tied to the naming of the book of Acts. Now, as we've talked about, this, this, like I said, this book's name is Acts. Have you, ever, have you ever wondered why it's actually called Acts? The reason being is because the book of Acts is actually a description, or it's actually a book that's written in the ancient world to speak of the acts of a great or important person. So I want you to imagine if you were to read a, a biography today on an important person, uh, maybe one by like Steve Jobs or by like Winston Churchill. You know, we have these tons of different biographies on, on important and powerful people. Well, there's a genre that was dedicated to that. And that's how the book of Acts is written like. But here's my question for you. Whose great acts is the book of Acts talking about? 
Whose acts are they working through? And I think most commentators have it right that the book of Acts is actually the acts of the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that's the driving force of the Christian faith in this book. He is the power of the church's message. This is why the Holy Spirit is such a prominent feature in the book of Acts. Because the Holy Spirit fulfills, uh, helps them to fulfill the mission, people to fulfill the mission. It helps people to understand and take power and to be bold in that mission and empowers them to go and to do as Christ had commanded them. Now, this is the book of Acts, and we can clearly see there's power there. But I would argue that that same Holy Spirit that's at work in the book of Acts is at work in the church today. And I want to share with you some of the ways that the Holy Spirit has empowered Acts and the people of Acts and how it's empowering us in the church today. So I have five things. The first of them is the Holy Spirit is what gives us a spirit-empowered boldness. Now, certainly there are people, probably even our own congregation, that have bold personalities, right? People who can just say what they want to say. They don't seem to have any recourse in how they feel. Bold personalities is definitely a thing. But when we talk about a spirit-led boldness, it's not born out of personality. It is a boldness that comes by spirit-filled conviction to act. That means that you can have any kind of personality. You could be timid. You could be shy, you could be bold. And yet all of these different personality types who are in Christ, who are, have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, will have this boldness. Through the book of Acts, when we see this boldness being acted upon, we can see that the people of God witness with great conviction and urgency. And I don't think that this conviction and urgency that they preached with just comes in spurts. It's not like it just happens every so often, randomly. This spiritual boldness among the people is always part of the makeup of the believers and acts. And for us as a church today, it's part of our makeup as well. It's where it gives us this readiness to give a defense for the hope that we have. But it has ebbs and flows. And it tends to ebb and flow with our own spiritual life. When we lack confidence in our faith... When we, find, when, we, when we find that we don't have the courage to proclaim the truth, for certainly the spirit here ebbs and it flows. Now this is not a failing of the Holy Spirit, but these are weaknesses in our own faith. Now I say ours because I too have this problem. There's often times I don't feel as eager as I should to proclaim my faith, or as assured as I am when I first began. I also go through ebbs and flows of my own faith. And there are times where I'm downright discouraged and lack confidence in the things that I'm saying. But I'm also reminded that a time when God has given me this spiritual boldness, this spirit-led boldness. And let me share with you some of those times. So in university, something that's very common is you often share on campus. You gather together in your campus group and you make decisions about which, you know, which, uh, uh, which rooms you're going to go into, which of the buildings you're going to enter, and you come to an agreement that you're all going to share the gospel with whoever you are, and you know, if, if you've been attacked or whatever happens, you know, those are things that will happen. But we all set this plan that we're all going to go and share the gospel. And I can tell you that every time that I went, I was terrified and full of anxiety. 
It makes it worse when you're a leader, too, because when you're a leader and you get embarrassed, you, know, you, you don't just feel bad for yourself, but you feel, feel bad for your group. You feel bad for you know, people who are watching you, seeing you as a leader. You know, is this all you got as a leader? Is this all we really have as Christians? We really don't have a defense for anything. We really have no answers to the gospel. We don't really know our gospel that well. So all of these feelings or all these emotions terrified me, made me full of anxiety. Now, I, I think the first thing I had to do was just, number one, get over yourself. Now, that sounds really weird, but there are times where you just have to recognize that these are just realities you can't control and that you just have to place all of your trust in the Lord. And that's what I did. And then I just told myself, I'm just going to start with a simple conversation and see where they go. But let me tell you, friends, that when I start to share the simple message of the gospel, that you and I are dead to sin and need a Savior, Jesus Christ, this person who came to suffer and die for our sins, yours and mine, and now that you must believe in him to have eternal life, I often felt unstoppable. I felt confident about every conversation that I had, and out of nowhere sometimes these thoughts and things to say just came out of nowhere powerfully, effectively. And never once did I regret a single conversation that I had when I shared the gospel. Now, I, don't, I need to tell you how big of a deal that is for me. I'm a person who has a regrets about probably every single, there's every single area of life I have some kind of regret. But there's not a single time that I shared the gospel that I, that I regret. It's in fact the times where I had the opportunity to share that I didn't. Those are times that I tend to regret. Now, you might ask, why have I never experienced this boldness of faith? And I would simply say that this boldness of faith is only given to those who are committed to the mission and looking to share the gospel at every opportunity. And the reason why we may not have experienced this boldness in our faith is because it's expressly given to us when we are looking to be witnesses in the world. And if our aim is not to be witnesses, if our aim is not to obey God's call for us to missions, then we will never receive this boldness. Secondly, I want to say that the Holy Spirit gives us the words to say, as Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, when they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and the authorities do not be anxious about how you would defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is exceedingly true in the book of Acts. When we see the people of God being under more and more difficulty, struggling more and more, and yet their words are becoming more and more powerful, that there is a life in the words that they're speaking. We see this applied in the, the, the preaching of the gospel by Stephen, who was martyred, and we see this again in Paul's trial near the end of the book of Acts. Now, these are just examples of when this power is seen, but it happens through all of the book of Acts. And it's a power which the Holy Spirit works in through us and through them to be able to say the right words at the right times and with conviction and with power. Now, you and I may never go before large groups of people to share our faith. You and I may never stand before a governor or a dictator and share our faith to them. But this promise that Jesus makes is for us 
as well in the 21st century. It's a promise that we do not have to be anxious when we come upon these difficult times and we have to make a, a defense or a telling of our faith or have to witness to a world in difficult circumstances because the Holy Spirit will guide us into the right words to say. Now, I don't want us to get mixed up here. I am not saying that every time you preach the gospel in these difficulties, that people are going to come to faith. That's not what we see in the book of Acts. This is also not truthful to the scripture. But what I am saying is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and speaks through you, you will speak honestly and powerfully about your faith. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit will prompt us where to be missional. And we're going to see this in, the, in, in Acts chapter 8 with Philip when he's told by an angel to go to the specific location. And then after that, the Holy Spirit takes over and, and basically leads him to the Ethiopian eunuch. So there are times where the Holy Spirit will lead us into missional situations. And I think that those are times that we will also experience as well. There are often times that we're going to feel this call or connection. We're going to be prompted or compelled to speak the gospel to people. The Holy Spirit is not just a guide in our lives to how to live spiritually, but it's a guide and directs us sometimes to how we should need to be called to be witnesses. Now, it's probably not going to be in an audible voice, but it might manifest itself in this unexplained yearning or call to action that you may feel drawn to share a message of the gospel with somebody. Maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's a place. And we should never ignore the Spirit's nudging in our lives because often it's a prompting from God to act. And maybe it's not even right now that we need to act, but to prepare ourselves to act when that time is, when comes. My fourth point of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is what awakens life to those you're witnessing to. John Calvin writes, the Holy Spirit is what binds, or what is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. The Holy Spirit is the glue that glues us to Christ. And what that means is there is a chasm between Christ's work and our inability to hold salvation. Our hearts are far away from him. We sin before him. We don't want this relationship. But Christ's work is right there. And what binds the two together is the Holy Spirit. It awakens men and women's hearts. It regenerates them, gives them life. And they now can believe upon the gospel. And this is what makes our mission effective. It's the Holy Spirit. My fifth point... And this is not an exhaustive list, but I think this last point really ties all the things that we've talked about together, is that we need the Holy Spirit because we live in an evil world. Over the last couple of, of weeks, we had talked about this idea of the armor of God, and we need the armor of God because we live in a hostile world to Christians. Now, this world is hostile in a way that basically is looking to wear you out, it's looking to attack you, it's looking to reject you. And we learned from the spiritual armor that our battle is not physical, that our fight is spiritual in nature. And hence to deal with spiritual warfare, specifically spiritual warfare in missions, we need the Holy Spirit. We need spiritual power. And there is no power greater 
and the second person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I've just described the Holy Spirit upon the church in Acts and what it should be like in our lives, but I suspect that for many of us, this is not our own experiences as Christians today, that we don't experience the Holy Spirit in our lives this way. And I think we actually often ask in this question of missions that maybe only if I had this one gift, this one skill, or maybe if I had this more risk-taking personality, I would be a better evangelist. I'd be better at missions. I would do missions if I had these skills, if I had this ability. Maybe we, we wish that we were more eloquent, that we spoke well, that we spoke intelligently, that we spoke effectively. Maybe we wish we thought that we had better minds, right? Oh, I know so I can anticipate what this person's gonna say. I can answer and give a defense of our faith. I think we often wish that we had all of these gifts and all of these skills and all of this ability so that we could be more effective at missions or at evangelism. And I want to say, yes, all these things are helpful. Yes, we praise God for all these gifts when they come upon people in the church and they are able to speak in a way that seems supernatural. But what I'm saying this morning about the Holy Spirit is that God has already given us the most important gift or tool in our mission, and that is the Holy Spirit. And that even if we aren't the most gifted people, we can still be very powerfully missional because we are a spirit-led people. It is a spirit that drives the mission. It's a spirit that empowers us for this mission. It's a spirit that saves in this mission. You may not have every gift, but you have the most important and precious gift, the Holy Spirit. And that's actually a good thing for us. It's a good thing that we don't have every gift. Otherwise, we might think that missions is about us and not about God. You know, everything as we do as Christians is about God and hinges on God to act. You know, maybe, maybe I'm off base and I'm definitely no expert in this area, but I would suspect we would all agree that the church, at least in North America, is somewhat weak on the topic of missions and evangelism. And my sense is the reason why we're weak is because when we look at ourselves in the mirror collectively as a church and we see the person on the other side, we don't see world changers. We don't see influencers. We don't see people with great fame or status or wealth or, or ability. You and I are just normal people. And how can normal people make change, especially the change that God is calling us to in the world? My friends, this is a form of idolatry and one that we must overcome if we ever want to be a missional community because our acting as being witnesses does not hinge on our power. It doesn't hinge on our ability or our fame. It doesn't hinge on any of these things. Our witness hinges on being filled with the Spirit, convicted with the truth by the Spirit, being made bold by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, to act as witnesses. Let me, let me make a, a point that for me sank in really deep. Did you realize that it, the Church of Acts did not pray for more gifts, but their prayer was that the Spirit would make them more bold? Let them sicken for a second. Think about how effective and powerful they were. Their prayer was not that they would have more gifting. Their prayer was the Spirit would make them more bold. 
And this difference makes all the difference in the world for us and how we think of the message going out. That the message going out doesn't rely on gifted or amazing or powerful people, but goes on, go, it goes out of people who have been moved and transformed by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit to go and to share their witness to the world. And this ultimately comes back to why did God choose you and me? Was it because he knew that we were world changers or that we were influencers or that we were great? The, sun, the funny, the sad, the ironic reality is God chose you and me for the large part because we were weak and foolish. And he specifically picked us to be weak and foolish who are weak and foolish to shame those who are strong and wise. And if we as people feel offended or hurt that God has picked us because we are weak and foolish to talk to those who are strong and wise, and then those strong and wise people tell us that we're weak and foolish, and we feel disarmed and disheartened by that, then we're never going to be missional. It's never going to happen in our community because our focus is too fixed on our own self-worth, our own value, our own glory, and not enough on God's worth, God's value, God's glory. Effectively, what we are saying in this situation is that we are much more interested in God, or in us increasing and God decreasing in our life. And so if this is our view, if our view is that our failure of missions is just because we don't have the right gifting, then we need to change this view. It's idolatry because the mission is not about us. The mission is about God. And it's God who is raising us up, the God who is filling us, empowering us, using us in this world. So we need to change our thinking about this question. I also want to say one, one more thing, is that this mission is important. And it's exactly what people truly need. Jesus has not called us into a hopeless mission where we are throwing ourselves at people for nothing. He is not calling us to a mission that has no end goal or no purpose, that it's just all about hurt and pain and suffering. He's calling us to a mission because it's the hope of all people where they can be freed from their sin and have true and lasting joy in Christ and be what they were meant to be. Did you know that all of history is heading towards redemption? And God is telling us our role in the plan of redemption, and that's to be his witnesses to bring about the redemption of people. And that means that God is true here, that what God is saying we believe, that we are on the right side of history that what we are doing ultimately is painful, yes, but it's temporary. And it's important for eternity, for the people who are being called and are, who are being saved. And the extent of this mission, Jesus tells us, is, the, is, is to the ends of the earth. Now, the last statistic that I read was that there are about three billion unreached people on this earth. But my heart has been more focused locally about Toronto. Toronto is part of this mission that we are to reach to be missional too. And Toronto is a nation of nations. We are a people that has many tribes, many nations, many tongues. And there are many of God's sheep that are yet among the people of Toronto that need to hear his voice and come to salvation and to know their Lord and Savior. We will see thousands of people from foreign lands in Toronto this year, and some who will come to our very church. We have friends and family who don't know the Lord. 
And there is a day that might be coming that they might spend an eternity away from God. Now, if we truly are a people who love people, should our hearts not feel something about the many people who will spend eternity without God? Will we just let them pass by without hearing of the hope that could be theirs? And I would say that we can't wait, we can't stand here and do nothing as people perish without hearing the message that we, that we claim has transformed us, has changed us, that is ultimate. How can we not give that to other people? Now this seems also to be the point of verses 9 to 11. In verses 9 to 11, the apostles are looking up as Jesus ascends into heaven, and as they gaze at the mighty sight, they behold two witnesses, probably angels. And the angels ask them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Now this question is actually kind of odd, but basically it's saying, why are you wasting your time looking up into heaven? He's gone. It's kind of like when you, when you watch a baseball game and you're shocked by what you're seeing because the other team has hit a home run. The game's over. You've lost. But in this case, the question that the angels are asking is, why are you looking up, looking as Christ is ascending into heaven? Because there's work to be done. There's work for you to do. And this work will be completed one day when he returns in the same way that he left. My church family, there is work to be done. And that work to be done is spelled out in the mission of our own church where it says our vision as, at CGC is that we want to be a missional community seizing every opportunity to share the gospel. How truthful are we about this mission and how honest are we about signing on to the mission of the church? But have you also realized or have you also thought that our desire, our calling to be missional is actually tied hand in hand with our faith? When we talk about this idea of having faith, one of the major elements of having faith is trust. And trust basically means that it has to have some kind of effect upon your life, that you're trusting this or you're trusting God, and this for, therefore it changes something about your life. That's real trust. So for instance, imagine you had a chair. It's rickety and old, it's probably like 100 years old. It looks like it's falling apart. And you tell somebody you trust this chair, but you're never going to sit on it. I have doubts. But if you tell me that, you, that, you, that there's this chair and you trust you sit on it, Man, you, you really did trust that this chair was going to hold you up. It's the same thing with our faith. Faith breeds with us the trust in God. And what this trust idea is, that the trust is this idea that he has called us to be witnesses. And he promises us the Holy Spirit. So do we trust him to go into the world, knowing that A, it's our mission, but B, he will be with us to the end of the age? And it's for this reason, I think, that we should all be encouraged in this mission of God, that we are not alone in this mission. We're not left in a hostile world where we are powerless against the powers of Satan. But outside, even outside the powers of Satan, we're powerless against other people coming to faith to knowing the truth. God has given to us a power that is unlike anything in this world, to be powerful in this world, to give a message of power in this world, to speak boldly into a world that is darkened 
and hostile. And something, the Holy, the Holy Spirit, who he will make our mission effective. Because this is what made Jesus start his ministry and be effective. It made the early church effective. And will make the church in the 21st century effective. So as I began with this morning, let's go. That wherever there is a person that we know that we have a heart for, that we're praying and looking to the Spirit to give us strength and power and words, but let's go and be witnesses wherever we can go and whoever we, to people that we meet this week and share with them and witness to them about the power of the gospel that will save their souls and that's saving us right now and having us overflow with joy. This is the word, Lord. Amen.